You can be seated. It's a blessing to have everybody with us here tonight, those who are with us here at the church, those who are listening on the radio right now or watching through a social media page. We welcome you. I want to begin by asking for prayer. A couple of things. Um, We do have a heightened COVID season in the area right now, and we want to pray for that. But also yesterday we learned that Pastor Ray Bentley from Maranatha Chapel in San Diego, and we sang a song by Phil Wickham, the very first song that we sang tonight. And uh, Phil Wickham's parents, John and Lisa Wickham, have been the worship leaders at Maranatha Chapel since Phil was 12 years old. But anyways, um, Ray Bentley had a heart attack yesterday, and he went to be with the Lord, and it was unexpected, of course, and uh, a lot of their church is grieving greatly right now. Also, I had sent out a prayer request for Pastor Mike McIntosh, another San Diego resident who uh, founded Horizon Christian Fellowship, his son now pastoring that church there. Mike was scheduled to have uh, quadruple bypass surgery yesterday, and they canceled the surgery because of lack of ICU beds. So no doubt surge causing that issue for him out there. So he had messaged me back today and and just saying that he appreciated our prayers and to let the fellowship know that it means a lot to know that people are praying for him. And so we want to just begin by praying for the family of Ray Bentley and the church family at Maranatha Chapel, and then also Pastor Mike McIntosh and his family as they await the surgery that he was supposed to have had yesterday. So I know my dad went through three heart surgeries, so I know the waiting side of being the family member uh, going through that process. So Father, we thank you for this day you've given us, a time to gather together to worship you, to look into your word, We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that we still have in this country, although it seems like our freedoms are being chipped away every single day. And in a couple of years of great difficulty, Lord, we this week learning of more difficulty with COVID numbers spiking across the nation, but here in Lake County, hearing just how our government is handling certain things, whether some people agree with that or not, Lord, it has been a difficult season for us all. And then yesterday to hear about Ray uh, leaving this earth to be with you, I pray that you would be with Maranatha Chapel and their church family. I know it's a difficult time for them and be with Ray's family. For Pastor Mike McIntosh, as he was scheduled to have surgery yesterday, today, actually, today, and was unable to do that because of scheduling issues in the hospital, we pray, Lord, that you would be with him. He had said last week that this surgery was unexpected, but quadruple bypass, pretty major. So, Father, I pray that you be with Pastor Mike. He's meant so much to so many within the Calvary Chapel movement. And here in the Midwest, Lord, he has a heart for the Midwest. And for two years, he had been doing live call-in shows at WHLP and just talking with people about Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow him to continue to do that. Be with him in this surgery that he needs and his healing process. For my son's pastor who passed away a couple of weeks ago out in Hawaii, and they're having that service for him this coming Saturday, I pray that you would be with the believers on that small island, Lord. Pastor Bob was just a light that he shone brightly on that island, Lord, and I know he'll be missed. I pray that you'd be with his family and... uh, Lord, be with them as they say their farewells to Pastor Bob. So tonight, Lord, we ask that you would be with our church body, those who are suffering. We pray for healing for those who are sick, those, Lord, who are 
struggling with just the times that we find ourselves in. I pray, Lord, for your peace to be upon them. And be with us tonight, Lord, as we look into your word. And as we learn from your word this evening, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight we're beginning the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Exodus and learning about Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and heading toward the promised land. And we have the author of the book of Exodus, which is also believed to be Moses, who authored this book, accounting the events that took place in his own life and the children of Israel as well. He kind of catches us up from the end of Genesis into the preparation for the Exodus. A lot of years had went by. And we will find as we go through the book of Exodus that they would actually depart from the land of Egypt 430 years to the day. From the day that they entered in, on that same day, they went out. And so a lot of years had went by. And we discover that Joseph is no longer remembered. And I found this very interesting, largely because of what we see going on in our own nation today. So let's go ahead and just get into the text and learn from God's word tonight. So we read in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through 1 through verse 7, where it tells us, now these are the names of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zubalan, all these being the sons of Leah, of course, the sons of Jacob, but by his wife Leah, I threw the Leah one in there. Then next he lists Benjamin, which was the son of Rachel. And also we know that Joseph was one of the sons of Rachel and Jacob as well. But in a moment, we'll read that Joseph's already in the land, so he wasn't counted in this list. And then Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, and finally Gad and Asher, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. And all those, verse 5, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So the book of Exodus, actually in the Hebrew it's called the book of the names. It takes its title from the very first words of verse one here in chapter one. Now these are the names, so the book of the names. But here we have this accounting of the children of Israel coming to live in the land of Egypt and Joseph inviting his family, if you recall, telling his family, go get dad, go get the family because you've already had come down to Egypt because of the famine and there's only two of the seven years have passed at this point. There's five more years of severe famine, so famine coming to this area. So go get the family, bring them to Egypt. We will take care of them. But we learned as we closed out the book of Genesis that as Jacob began to make his way to Egypt, he had to make a pit stop at Bethel. He had to make a pit stop at the house of God because there at Bethel, the Lord confirmed to Jacob that it was okay to go down to Egypt and God actually promised that he'd not only bring them down, but he would bring them back up again. But while they were in Egypt, he would make them a great nation. And so it wasn't just a, a family invitation, Joseph saying, come on down, it's great here in Egypt, we'll do well. It was not only the invitation, but God's prophetic word that Jacob had to hear from the Lord that it was right for him and his family to go down to Egypt. And so they received that word from the Lord. They relocated to Egypt. And 
in answer to Joseph's invitation, but also in obedience to the word of God, Jacob, his 11 sons, along with their households, 70 persons in all came into the land of Egypt. But as time passed, verse 7, Joseph, his brothers, all that generation died, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now God had promised Jacob at Bethel, at the house of God, that's what Bethel means. God had promised Jacob these words, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. And God was with Jacob, his family, as they went down to Egypt. And God allowed Joseph to put his hands on his father's eyes, just simply saying that when Jacob died some 17 years later, Joseph was there at his bedside and was the one that actually closed his father's eyes as he passed from this life into everlasting life. Now, God was also growing them into a great nation as he promised he would do. And so he not only grew them to a great nation at this point, but he said, I will bring them up again. And he's about ready to act, to bring them up from Egypt to the promised land. Now, here in this account in verse 7, it said the land was filled with the Israelis and God had uniquely kept the Israelites from assimilating with the people of Egypt. It's pretty amazing. They've been there for 400 years and yet they did not, in a large part we say might say, maybe in a small part they did, but for the most part they did not assimilate in the land. They didn't intermarry with the Egyptians. But this was something that God had arranged back in Genesis 46. We learned that when Joseph's family came to live in Egypt, Joseph encouraged his brothers to say to the Pharaoh that we are all shepherds. And in Genesis 46, 34, the word tells us that the Egyptians saw that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. They could not stand shepherds. And so this allowed the children of Israel to remain in Goshen, separated from the Egyptians, And this odd Egyptian custom was used by God to keep Israel's descendants pure without assimilating into the nation of Egypt. They maintained a separate people group within the land for the next 430 years, as I had said. Because by the time we read of the first census that's found in the book of Numbers chapter 1, We are told, as they sum up the census, counting all the men who were able to go to war, those who were 20 years old and above, that there were 603,550 people. So over 600,000 men able to go to war from 20 years old and above. So they had grown into a, a great multitude of people, some figure if you add children in there and the wives that maybe we had 2 million people who would come out of Egypt during the Exodus. So in verses 8 through 14, we find that there was a forgetting of Joseph. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we come Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the events of a war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh the supply cities of Pithom and Ramses and The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were uh, in dread of the children of Israel. So Moses doesn't say how many years had passed 
from the time that Joseph brought his family down to Egypt and they began to afflict the Israelis. Some believe that maybe a hundred years had went by. He did say that that whole generation had gone. So Joseph and his brothers were no more. And sometime after that, a new king arose. And some believe that this forgetting of Joseph's salvation of the Egyptian people began happening after they had been in the land for around a hundred years. The author of 1984, George Orwell, had once said the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And here we find a situation where there was a new king that rose up in Egypt and he did not know Joseph. There was a a denying, a destroying of the history. How could he not know Joseph? Somebody had been erasing. There was a, he's still living to this day, a pro-communist born in Czech Republic. He had said these words and he's for communism. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, that nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And sadly, I I believe we're seeing a similar thing attempting to take place here in the United States today where there is an attack against the Judeo-Christian society, the principles that our nation was founded upon, an attack against the U.S. Constitution, an erasing of our founding fathers, the tearing down of statues, the rewriting of history. And they're doing it on purpose because they desire a different future for the United States than what was set up by our founding fathers. So it was in Israel. All that the new king knew was that the children of Israel, they were more and mightier than the Egyptians. And so he saw them as a problem. Therefore, he he counseled with his people that they should deal shrewdly with Israel, lest it would happen that Israel would multiply. If there was a war, Israel would fight with the enemies of Egypt. And then notice in verse 10, and so go up out of the land. They had grown accustomed to the labor of Israel, the slavery of the Israelites there in the land of Egypt. Yet the more they afflicted them, God did something that seemed very odd. And the word of God tells us the more they afflicted Israel, the more God blessed them, caused them to multiply and grow. And soon Israel's numbers increased. So did the dread of the Egyptians regarding the children of Israel. They so dreaded the growth of the children of Israel in their land, the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. He made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, verses 12 through 14. Now, I believe God was using the hard labor, the rigor. God was teaching the children of Israel skills that they might not have had to learn if it had not been forced upon them to do so. But he was also preparing an army that they would, when they go out of the land of Egypt, that they would be a strong army able to defend their own families and to fight the Lord's battle there in the promised land. Now, regarding the dating of the book of Exodus, there are two main theories. I'm going to read two of those theories to you. And uh, they're really uh, vary by a couple of hundred years, actually. 
And this is from gotquestions.com. Although the new king in verse 8 was never named, it is widely believed to be Ramses II, who ruled approximately during the years 1290 to 1224 BCE. The Bible is quite specific about the site of their enslavement, the two cities that they had mentioned. The first city that they mentioned, Pithom, is believed to be the Hebrew pronunciation of the word Per Atum, or the house of Atum, the god of the setting sun. And Ramses, presumed to be named after the city, named after the pharaoh that ruled over them. Um, I read other people who go against this, saying that the timeline doesn't fit as they're trying to make it fit here from gotquestions.com. But another Bible knowledge commentary has us with Amenhotep II from 450 to 425 B.C., and that being the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And he seemed to have suffered a very great military reversal. He was unable to carry out extensive military campaigns. His weak war efforts may have resulted from, here's what they say, and this is coming from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. His weak war efforts may have resulted from the loss of all or most of his chariots in the Red Sea. The so-called Dream Stella records that the god of Harmatuk told the young prince in a dream that someday he would be king. And therefore, this statement kind of fits in with what is believed, not only the exodus of Egypt, but the entering in of the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. And I, I agree better with the uh, later date of the exodus. They are lining it up with the life of Abraham. And also we have Solomon building the temple and he dates the building of the temple by the exodus of the Israelis out of Egypt. And so it helps us kind of get a timeline of these things. But it is still debatable around a 200-year between the 14th or the 12th century. But no matter the exact time of the Exodus, when the works of good people are forgotten, tyranny often rises in its place. And so we find, as we continue, verses 15 through 21, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Ziphrah and the other was Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys as they were being birthed. They were to be immediately killed, but the Bible tells us, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. The Hebrew word here for fear is yair, which means to fear, to be afraid of, or it can mean to revere. I like that. In other words, they stood in awe of God honored him above the commandments of men. We find in the New Testament that Peter and the other apostles were challenged in their day and age to obey God rather than men when they were told not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. In Acts 5.29, the word of God tells us that Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And here in the Greek, that word for ought can refer to a moral necessity for our obedience, a moral necessity for our obedience. And so according to the word of God, we know that the word teaches that we are to be submissive to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. 
in order that we might bring glory to God. However, when the government turns against the commands of God, we, like Zifra or Pua, we have a moral obligation to obey God rather than men. So it was, verses 18 through 21, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done these things and saved the male children alive? Why do I see so many baby Hebrew boys running around? What's going on? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiply and grew very greatly. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So because they obeyed God rather than the commandment of the king, God provided households for the two midwives for their faithfulness to him. But notice in verse 22, afterwards Pharaoh commanded, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Thus Pharaoh put the responsibility of killing the newborns on the parents. So each family had to choose to either walk in obedience to the commandment of God or to the government. And sadly, there's evidence of a mass grave of infants in Egypt that points to the fact that maybe many of the parents obeyed the government rather than God. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of a large slave town which shows evidence of hasty desertion and abandonment of households, possessions, and implements like it would be in the Exodus and they quickly went out in a single day. And in the same area, there is a site of a mass infant burial ground. And so it could be that many of the parents chose to obey Pharaoh rather than God. It may be that we would have the courage in the day and age that we live in to do what's right, to honor God over human government, to do what's right in his sight. And we have to judge those things, but it's important that we would have such confidence. In the Exodus account here in chapter one, it tells us that God blessed the midwives because of their faithfulness to him. But also we learn in the book of Acts that God blessed the apostles as well. In Acts 4.33, it tells us, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. They chose to obey God rather than men and God blessed them with the empowering of the Holy Spirit and his grace. And although many are attempting to erase, as I said earlier, our Judeo-Christian heritage. There is uh, an attempt to erase our history today in our land. May we be people who refuse to forget the foundational truths upon which our country has been founded. And may we not only remember these things, but pass them on to our children, especially our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm still in school. I still take online classes. I'm still learning. I've never, in years past, I never really considered myself a great student. Being a pastor kind of demanded me to have to be a student. It's like if you're going to come up and speak before people and teach the Word of God, you need to know some things. And so I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And I really don't think that I cared that much for history, but I have to tell you right now, I want to learn our history in this nation because our nation's history is so under attack. I want to be able to counterattack and to speak truth. Whether people will listen or not, I want to be a voice of truth. I hope that you do as well. So that's chapter one. Let's go ahead and get into chapter two tonight. And the word of God tells us in verses one and two, and the man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So here we have the introduction of Aram and Jochebed, the father and mother of Moses, who at this point we know later on in in the passage in this chapter, we'll learn that Moses had an older sister. Later on, we'll learn that he had an older brother, uh, Aaron and Miriam, his sister. And so they had already had two. They had a son and a daughter, but now they're speaking specifically of the birth of Moses. That this chapter here in chapter two, covering at least 40 years of Moses's life, His parents, though, because they were willing to honor God over man, allowed Moses to have life. Pharaoh had ordered, as we learned in the last chapter, that every male that was born alive was to be cast into the river. But Amram and Jochebed saw that their son, being beautiful, hid him for three months. It tells us here, that she hid him for three months in verse two. But we not only learned the names of Moses' parents in Exodus 6.20, we also read in Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They knew what was right. And they said, forget the Pharaoh. We're going to do what's right in the sight of God. And they hid their son. Some might say that there was a a partial obedience. They were to take the baby boy and cast him into the Nile River. In a moment, we're going to read about Jochebed building an ark to put her son in. And where did she place him? In the Nile River. Technically, she placed him in the river. She just put him in a boat that he wouldn't drown and that he would be safe there. But it was because of their disobedience to the king that a great man of faith arose who would deliver the children of Israel from the captivity of Egypt. In a similar way, I'm very thankful for the role that my parents played in my family. They not only helped me, my sisters, but many others come to faith in Jesus Christ. I know that my parents' example played a great role in myself becoming the man I am today. And I want to be that type of example. I've said this many times over the last several years from the pulpit that a good man, according to the Proverbs, a good man leaves good gifts to his children and his children's children. And so to his kids and to his grandchildren, a good man leaving good gifts And, you know, as I consider that verse, there may be some financial gifts left if the Lord should tarry and I go home to be with the Lord at some point. But when I say a good man leaving good gifts to his children, his children's children, that part of faith is so important to me that I would pass on my faith and be an example of faith to my children, to my children's children, as my parents was for myself and my sisters, but my dad being a pastor over in Zion, Illinois, there's a number of people who came to faith under his ministry. So many were blessed because of his faithfulness, not just my own family. And I too want to be that. We can all be that. For those who are around us, we can impact others for Christ. And right now, there is a great need for people to live Christ before others. There are a lot of people who are in despair. Suicide is very high right now in our nation. Drug overdose is very high right now in our nation. And people are looking for hope. And we have that which they need. So we need to be that light. We need to shine brightly before others to be the example, be willing to take these steps of faith, even though it might go against the cultural norm or the commands that we might have come down on us in government, that we should shine lights. So in uh, San Diego, 
Pastor Michael McClure, over the last year in San Diego, California, his church has $2 million worth of fines against his church. Pastor Michael McClure has 100000 plus on his person fined in San Diego. And I was listening to him on a podcast probably a month or two ago. And all that stuff's going on. They actually changed the name of their church today. So um, I forgot the new name, but God's working. But one thing that he said, he said when all this began, the COVID thing began a couple of years ago, he said we had about 500 people coming to our church. Right now we have about 3,000 people coming to our church. So yeah, the government's fining them. The government is harassing them. And God is bringing people into their fellowship. And their church is growing in spite of all that the government's trying to do against them. So it was back to our Exodus account. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now when she could hide him no longer, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done with him. So it became a difficulty. How do you hide a three-month-old baby boy? They tend to cry a bit. It's hard to keep them silent. And so they made an ark. They placed him in the Nile. And they had Miriam stand close by to watch to see what would become of him. Perhaps they knew where Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to bathe because that's what we discover right now in verses 5 and 6. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked up along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maids to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. Nothing like a crying baby to pull at the hearts of a wannabe mom. And she had compassion on him. And this is one of the Hebrew children, she said. So the timing was perfect. Of course, it was God's timing in this whole thing. Now Miriam's watching. And she immediately came over to the princess and said, verses 7 through 9, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Hint, hint, kind of directing it a little bit here. And the daughter said to her, Go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. God is just hilarious in how he does things sometimes. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses' mom, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only did she uh, get her son back for a period until he was winged, and I had read once a long time ago, it's just stuck in my head, can't confirm it, but believed to be that a child would wing around the age of three years old. So it could have been that mom raised Moses for three years, had three years to invest in her son. And I can tell you that a three-year-old can learn quite a bit in a household. And she was even paid for her services. In verse 10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And so she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. So once winged, possibly around the age of three, Moses became the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. She named him Moses, a name that means drawn out, or he who draws out. One of the commentators put it this way, the one who draws out, i.e. delivers, draws out Israel from Egypt through the water of the Red Sea. So they connected his name to that of his mission that he would save Israel from the Egyptian captivity. Of course, we know that God was always behind the scene working in Moses' life. Stephen wrote about this account in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 17 through 22. Stephen would say, 
And when the time came of the promise drew near, which God has sworn to Abraham, and the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph, this man dealt treacherously with the people. He oppressed our fathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. So this takes us, verse 10, to 40 years of Moses' life. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, was mighty in words and deeds. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote of Moses victoriously leading an Egyptian army against the Ethiopians who had come and defeated the Egyptians and subjugated their people. And Moses, as the Ethiopians left Egypt to go back to their land, Josephus writes about Moses taking a, a shortcut across the wilderness of, I think, uh, poisonous snakes or something. It's been a while since I read this. But he actually took the Egyptian army through a shortcut. He beat the Ethiopian army back to their own land and so was able to not only conquer them but recover everything that had been lost. So there are outside of the Bible, historical events that uh, Moses was truly, as Scripture said in Acts 7.22, learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians, being a man mighty in words and deeds. The Lord was working all things together for good years before Moses would ever have a relationship with God. God was there watching over the life of Moses from being a child to being raised up in the household of an Egyptian princess, the daughter of Pharaoh. It reminds us, as the Lord spoke to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, saying to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctify you. I had ordained you to be a prophet of God. And it might not be that we have been ordained to be prophets or preachers or priests or missionaries, but God has created us for his purpose, to fulfill his divine purposes in our lives. So 11 through 15, we find that it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews of his brethren. So Moses went out in his 40th year. According to Stephen again in Acts 7.25, the Bible teaches us that Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So at 40 years old, this tells me in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, that Moses had an inkling of the call of God upon his life. And he attempted to fulfill that call by killing one Egyptian. Having the idea of God's call upon his life, the Bible tells us, verse 12, Moses looked this way and that. And when he saw no one, he killed an Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Some have said about this verse that Moses looked this way and that, but he forgot to look up before he killed the Egyptian. On the following day, when he returned to that area and saw two Hebrew brethren fighting one another, he tried to correct them and they responded to him. Verse 13 through 15. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one of who had done wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you the prince and the judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. 
and sat down by a well. So after the hearing that his killing was known, that the Pharaoh sought to take his life, Moses fled into Midian. Now the author of Hebrews had a few things to say about this as well. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. I got to tell you, it's often good when you can read an account in the Bible and then you can find other places in the Bible. We'll read from the Psalms. We'll read from the book of Acts, I already have. And here in Hebrews 11, 24 and 27, we got the commentary of God's word. It says, Hebrews 11, 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to his reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now Moses could have lived out his days in Egypt in pleasure, in wealth, and in great renown. Yet he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Think about this. Moses was a Hebrew child. Well, how would they know that he was a Hebrew child? Well, according to Hebrew law, on the eighth day, he was to be circumcised. So just think of Moses running around with all of his Egyptian friends. He had one thing that stood out, although he no doubt wore clothing, but he knew he was different because of the circumcision. And that's something that being raised by an Egyptian mother could not take away from him. He knew that he was different. Somehow, the rearing in his mother's house as a young boy, a baby, how much knowledge he gained during that time, it's hard to say, but he esteemed the riches of Christ greater treasures than that of Egypt. This speaks about the messianic hope that he had for himself and his people. And ultimately, Moses' messianic hope not only changed the course of his own life, but his nation as well. Yet God would take another 40 years to prepare this man that he would use to lead his people out of Egypt. So it was, verses 16 through 22. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Verse 17, then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So after Moses arrived in Midian, he sat by the well. He saw the daughters come out and fill up the troughs that they could water their flocks. And then some mean shepherds came along and kicked the women away. They wanted to take advantage of the filled troughs. But Moses stood up against the shepherds. He caused them to depart. He watered the flocks of the Midian priests. Verses 18 through 22. And when they came, the daughters came to Ruel, their father. He said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zephorah his daughter to Moses. She bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in the foreign land. And so after hearing of an Egyptian rescuing, so he still looked like an Egyptian. He may have been Hebrew on the inside, in the flesh, but he looked like an Egyptian in his attire, his dress, and probably uh, walk like an Egyptian, talk like an Egyptian. You can sing the song later. Jethro, though, so two names given to uh, Moses' father-in-law in Scripture, Ruel and Jethro. Either one, he invited Moses to come into his house. When Moses was content to stay, 
He gave him his eldest daughter. She bore him a son, which means, Gershom means sojourner. For the next 40 years, God enrolled Moses in the Midian Desert Institute. He had the wisdom of Egypt, but he needed more than the wisdom of Egypt to lead the children of Israel. He had to learn the ways of a shepherd. And the one way to do that was to become a shepherd. God would also use this time to humble Moses. And after he would graduate from the Midian Desert Institute, Moses would no longer believe that he could deliver the children of Israel. In fact, we'll learn next week that he would tell the Lord, send someone else. See, when Moses was 40 years old, he thought, man, I could do this. I could be Israel's deliverer. And God said, nope, you're not ready yet. Let's wait another 40 years. Now at 80 years old, God would have him right where he needed him. The word of God tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. And sometime God takes time to work through our lives in order that he can prepare us for the future work that he'd have for us. I still remember to this day three men coming on a midweek service, and I believe they only came to church once. Two of the men announcing regarding the one man that he's our pastor, he's been called into ministry. I don't know, you know, why they needed to to announce that to me or uh, what they were up to. As I said, I don't think I ever saw them after this one Wednesday night meeting. I responded to that call of ministry. I said, you know, from the time the Lord called me into ministry until I became the pastor of this church, 11 years had to go by. And I saw the guy who had been called into ministry, just his shoulders kind of shrink down. There you go, John, encouraging the uh, brothers. But it's true. Sometimes God has to take time to work in our lives in order to prepare us for the future work that he'd have for us. And sometimes we try to get ahead of God. At the age of 40, Moses was trying to get ahead of God. At the age of 80, Moses couldn't even keep up with God and what God was going to do through him. Now this closes out with just a great word concerning God himself. Four words that are significant to me in verses 23 through 25 are the words heard, remembered, look, and acknowledged. The word of God tells us, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. In verse 24, so God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. God heard, God remembered, God looked, God acknowledged. Now, God had not forgotten. It's not that God needed to be reminded, but what this passage is telling us, that God was getting ready to act in behalf of his people. In Psalm 105, verses 42 through 45, the psalmist speaks about this time. He says, For God remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, and he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. God remembered. Well, that word for God remembering is like not trying to make God remember. He knows all things, but it's actually telling us that God is about to do a work. In Acts 7.35, Stephen would say, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge, is the one that God sent to be ruler and to deliver the hand of the angels who appeared to him in the brush. Before Israel could be delivered out of their bondage, they first had to 
receive their deliverer. At the age of 40, they rejected Moses. And Moses thought they had understood that God had sent him to deliver them. But the second time, and Stephen points this out, the second time, then they received their Savior. For them at that time, it was talking about Moses. But the same is true for us today, that in order for us to be delivered from the bondage of sin, we first must receive our deliverer. And that deliverer is Jesus Christ himself. Here on Wednesday evenings at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, I've been for the last year going through the ABCs of salvation. And I'd like to just run through those with you right now. The A stands for admit. Admit to God that you are a sinner and ask for his forgiveness. In Romans 3.23, it tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in 1 John 1.9, the word of God tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to admit to God that we are sinners. Secondly, we need to believe the B, standing for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and receive that gift of salvation. In Romans 5, 8, it tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I love Romans 5, 8, that it is written in present tense. I would assume if I was writing Romans, if I was Paul, I would have written but God demonstrated his own love toward us. Past tense, the demonstration of Christ on the cross being that demonstration, of course. But that's not how it's written. It's in present tense. God demonstrates to this day, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the C is for confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Share that faith with others. The word of God tells us in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For the heart, one believes unto righteousness with the mouth. Confession is made unto salvation. And Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For those who are here, if you have any questions regarding faith, of course, you can talk with me. If you're listening on WLGS right now, if you're watching through social media or hear this message at a later time, you can email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. I'm going to close this out in prayer here in a moment. This coming Sunday, though, we are continuing... Lord willing, our journey. So I began last week a chronological journey through the Gospels. And so I'm taking all four Gospels, my attempt, taking all four Gospels, trying to put it in order and teaching that in a chronological order. And so we're going to be in one Gospel this coming Sunday in Luke chapter 1, because that's how it works out. That's the order. And so this week we'll be in one gospel and we will see two angelic birth announcements. That's the title I gave this, two angelic birth announcements. It's been a great blessing to be with you. I'd like to close this out in prayer, so let's stand. Father, you know that I, I love going through your word. I love the account given to us of Moses and the Exodus. And such great moments of faith being displayed. But also we learned tonight times when Moses' faith wasn't so great. When he actually ran instead of standing strong. But even in this, we understand through your word tonight, Lord, that he needed to run for a time, for a season. Because there was more that you needed to teach him. He needed to become a shepherd, that he might shepherd your people. Lord, I don't know exactly where each of us might be in our lives tonight, 
We might be in the process of that learning period. You have a plan for us that I believe and that I trust. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be willing to learn, to look into your word, to grow in faith, that we might serve you in the day and age that you have placed us in. Lord, it is not a mistake that we live in this very hour that we find ourselves in, in a world, Lord, that is just confused. Lord, you have given us faith in Jesus. So help us to be a people of faith and to be a light to others around us. I pray for those, Lord, who are sick. Pray for those who are suffering. As we began tonight, Lord, with those who have recently passed away, some of the pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement, Lord, they've gone to be with you. Lord, I pray that you would be with those families and just bless them. Bless us, Lord. Be with our families as well. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. And may we have the excitement of those children down there. (laughs) Amen.